Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 64 in our teaching series, As in the Days of Noah, titled The Church of Laodicea and Summary of the Seven Churches. Our teacher is Alan Smith. Good morning. Good to see you as we continue on in our in our studies of the Word of God to see what the Lord's saying to the churches, which we happen to be a part of. <laughs> Amen. You know, it's a, um, a world in which we live in. It is a, um, a struggle, it seems, uh, for many to, um, to keep walking the walk of the faith. If you've, if you've been in the faith for, you know, several years, we see that many are, or I'm seeing that quite a few are starting to fall away just a little bit. And um, I understand that. I mean, I understand how we can get caught up in falling in a type of a falling away. There's different types of falling away. But we need to understand that in these days, uh, there is something that sustains us, and it's called faith. And faith is not just a word of make-believe. Faith, <laughs> faith sets something supernatural into action. And which the Holy Spirit then keeps us encouraged. The Holy Spirit, uh, we mentioned Wednesday night that uh, there's people getting very hopeless, it seems. And there's a lot of hopelessness around us, which is very, uh, very obvious to say the least. And we see this in the seven churches uh, that we've been studying, that hopelessness is all around us. It's everywhere and it can creep into our own hearts at times. Uh, but something uh, takes over in the place of hopelessness, and that's called courage. Courage is actually a supernatural impartation, I believe, of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And courage takes over because you're not then living your Christian life based on your, just your hope. You're basing your Christian life on your level of obedience to the truth. And being obedient to the truth is also an experience just like having great hope. When we have great hope, we're happy and we're giddy and we got great hope. Uh, but great courage is also uh, is something to be experienced when it's given to us by the Holy Ghost. And great courage comes when... Uh, great courage, and I say there's a difference in courage and great courage. Great courage comes in hopeless situations. Can anybody hear that? Yeah. And it's great courage. And in this grace, great courage is an impartation. So I've been praying to God that he would give his churches the gift of great courage, uh, even when things look hopeless on a personal level as well as a corporate level as well as a country level and a world level uh, we can also I can sit around all day and give you stories of what all God's doing also of great things that God's doing to try to give you hope but also no I can't sit around telling you great stories all the time sometime or another you sit at home and you're by yourself and you read the news or you look at the news or, or tragedy in your own family and things uh, can appear to be hopeless, which makes us feel sad and like we're losing, if you will, or that that God's uh, not got the last word on this thing. 
And those are normal, would be normal feelings. And the longer we go into these days, the greater uh, the hopelessness can come in. You say, well, Alan, that looks like to me that's a little faith. That faith, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And faith is what's attacked. I mean, there's, there's no doubt. But courage is an impartation that comes when you feel hopeless. Uh, George Washington crossed the Delaware, hopeless, British everywhere. Uh, a few men against thousands. And, uh, but for some reason there was a fog that came in on, on, uh, on the river there. Even though they were hopeless, they had great courage. They said, we're going to just go. They got in their boats and they went. And it just so happens that their courage caused them to move, not great hope. I hope you can hear what I'm saying here. They were in a hopeless situation. But great courage comes off of the memory of great faith. Faith in God's Word. Faith in what God says. And so I'm praying that great courage will come upon the church because we see that that's what happens in the uh, latter days. And uh, you, have, you, you see people that are raised up, that will be raised up in our government, in our churches, in our lives. Uh, people of great courage. And people of great courage will make those of us that don't have great courage uncomfortable. <laughs> That's just what happens. And uh, instead of being uncomfortable, perhaps we should pray for great courage also. And we'll see that in these seven churches. Uh, and, of course, his teaching is, as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Here's some great courage. Uh, this is another quote from John Wimber. We don't seek God's power. We seek his presence. His power and everything else we need is always found in his presence. It's a good word because it's not like we're abandoning his, uh, his power or, or but it's, a, it's according to what you seek. It just so happens if we've got the presence of God, we've got the whole ball of wax, as they say. And that's what we start seeing. Now in the church of Laodicea, I'm going to finish up the first few slides here. We'll finish up Laodicea and I want to get to, into it a little bit of a summary of the seven churches. What, what are we learning? What are we picking up? But to end up the church of Laodicea, we see it's the final state of apostasy. It's the lukewarm church. We see that in Revelation 3, 14 uh, through 19. This is my little uh, diagram I have here. We're at the last church, Laodicea, time of the judgment and the opening of the seven seals. And uh, there again, that's a, kind of another teaching of the seven churches, seven time periods as you see there. But it, it's important for us to see in the Laodicean church that the, is the beginning of the opening uh, can happen. Here are the groups of four main groups of sevens, we call it. You've got seven churches. You've got seven seals. Seven churches. You've got seven seals. You've got seven trumpets. And then you got the seven vials of the wrath of God. Uh, is what this? That's basically uh, going through the book of Revelation. There, so we see we're in the Laodicea uh, church age. Now, some people disagree with that, but 
the only way I can see you could disagree is you have to close your eyes and church history is the only way I know you could do it. But some people do shut their eyes and they say there's nothing to that. Uh, but there's more people who think that there is just by looking at church history. But we also understand that the seven seals will, uh, will be realized in uh, the last you know, church age. So some people can say, well, Alan, do you think that um, I'm a type, one of those that embrace the rapture of the church and uh, I'm pre-tribulation rapture and I always put in a little caveat and give or take seven years. That's in case I'm wrong. <laughs> so I'll put that in there. And uh, But I am of that persuasion. Uh, and I uh, believe that the seven seals uh, will be realized and can be realized uh, while the church is still here on the earth. And so that means it can go ahead and begin. We'll look at that. We'll touch on it just a little bit, not much today. Now, here's the Laodicean church. You can see it's the last of the seven churches there. We kind of went around the block. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I believe Dan, uh, Dan had, y'all have been to all seven or most of them? Y'all went to all seven. Wow. Okay. They've went to all seven uh, churches, so they should be made whole now, I guess. Okay, here's the background. Laodicea means a justice of the people, known for banking, manufacturing. Now, basically, Laodicea means that it was actually run by the people. In the United States, we actually, uh, uh, it's kind of a scary point there because we have a, what's called a, a republic, of, uh, they say all the time that we need to defend our democracy. I understand what they're saying, but actually we're a republic. A, a democracy is when the majority rules, but a republic is when a minority has a seat at the table. You don't, uh, the, the, the majority cannot rule over, run over a minority. Yeah, in a republic, a, a minority, uh, everyone's protected, and the majority and what we see in happening today, and I hear it on the news all the time, and this blows my mind, we need to protect our democracy, and I don't want to get into a lot of that, but I'm like, we need to re protect our republic, somebody. I understand what they mean. It's, you know, the word democracy is replacing the, the, the word republic in our vocabulary over the last 30 years. And we are a democracy in some areas, but that's not, uh, it's in this republic in which we stand. Okay, one nation under God. So in Laodicea, we see that they had poor water supply. They also had a famous school of medicine known for ointment and powder for treating your eyes, a type of eyesaf. We see that Christ refers to this. Uh, he tends to uh, take a lot of the things that are happening in the natural world in an area and applies it to his warnings. Paul's first letter to Timothy was written by him from Laodicea, which I think is uh, interesting in 1 Timothy 6, 21. And then we got uh, into the scripture, which we'll read over uh, quickly as we move on. But to the angel of the church of Laodicea write these things, says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold or hard. I could not wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Some say I will spew you out of my mouth. Either way, I'll take it that you're being rejected. Yeah. 
I don't think that's a good thing. So here we come. Uh, Laodiceans. Laio means people. Deceans uh, means rulers. So we can see that the church was ruled by the people. That's the reason I brought up the idea of, of uh, it's a big thing with me and in that book that Trevor wrote, who's in charge here. Because in America, most churches does everything by the majority votes, and this is what we do. And, and I'm not going to say it's a big sin, but no means. I understand the concept, but we sometimes bring a lot of this legislation into the, into the church. Uh, and actually, in Laodicea, that was part of their downfall. It means ruled by the people. And uh, the idea of church, which I, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's, it is to allow Jesus to rule the church is, uh, in one sense of the word, is a hard thing to pull off. In another sense of the word, it's an easy thing to pull off. Um, to let Jesus rule is kind of the lazy man's way, if you will, to yield to Christ, to yield to his rulership. A lot of people have different definitions of what that looks like, and I, I get that, and I understand that. Uh, but what we're not into is a hierarchical government that uh, rules the people. Here, Laodicea, the people ruled other governments. The hierarchical structure would then rule. Uh, neither one of them is right. Uh, to, re- to recognize Christ ruling, it requires more yielding on God's people uh, than it does trying to have a, the next great idea. Uh, the truth is, if we all we could yield to a child's idea in here, uh, they could come up, and a child could come up and say something. And the truth is, if we all yielded to that child and came in unity, if the child came up and said, I think we need to have a hot dog stand, if we all yielded to that and said, okay, we think that's where the Lord, we're all going to come in unity, we're going to make a hot dog stand. Believe it or not, we would be very successful in that hot dog stand. And that's the way the church works, is it's not that you yield to a greater that's what hierarchical is. You don't, you're not yielding to greater people. You learn that you yield to the lesser to find out that the lesser was the greater all the time. That's the secret. You yield to what you think is a lesser to find out that the lesser was the greater uh, all the time. That's what Christ did at the cross. He went to the cross. He died for us lessers. And in his heart, the lesser was the greater. And that's the example that Christ has given us. That is the secret to who's in charge here. Now, so we can see this is part of their problem. Uh, So who is supposed to rule the church? And uh, I just talked about that. So then he gets into amen. Uh, these things say as the amen, the faithful and true witness. And here, I, that's where I ended up last uh, week, that most of the time we'll say amen at the end of something. And here they said it at the beginning. I guess uh, they got a little excited. Uh, faithful and true witnesses, you can see that in Revelation uh, uh, 1.5. What does it mean? I will vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, the only thing I can tell you is that means you're making him sick. Uh, he says this in Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So there again, you got to make a, a comparison here. Not everyone that says Lord, Lord, will enter, but the ones that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, I have we not prophesied in thy name, and thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That is a incredibly scary statement. Incredibly scary statement. Because on one uh, place he's saying, you're not just to use your mouth about Christ, you're to do the works. And here he's saying, if you just do the works, but there's something missing. Either way, you've got to have him in your heart and be led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit, doing the right thing at the wrong time is not being led by the Spirit. We can have it in our head, well, this is the right thing to do. And, and, and I've, I've said this example many times. You can be in an operating room and they roll, room and they, they roll you into an operating room, room and a brain surgeon comes in, cuts your head, saws your head open to going after a brain tumor, and then they run in and say, no, no, he needs a heart transplant. Well, you can have the best doctor, you can have the best understanding, but apply it to a wrong situation and cause death and not life. At the best, your uh, time of recovery is much longer when they sew his head up and have to put a heart in. So, so the, the key to truth is application. Now, I know the truth of truth is always the truth, but you've got to understand that with the Holy Ghost, truth and application go hand in hand. It goes, it goes hand in hand. Uh, did you know you can take the gospel of Christ and apply it at their own time and send somebody basically to hell? They'll be such a rejection of what you're saying. You do more harm than you can good. You can go away being proud of yourself. That I bless God, I gave in the gospel. But the question is, bless God, did they receive the gospel? Right? So, uh, so there's a... And, and I can get hung over this statement, but truth is truth, but truth works when it's applied under the Holy Spirit of God. And as Christians, it's important that we, I mean, you can even in your own children or people perhaps that you even mentor, you know, you can say, well, I'm just, or, or, or somebody else can come up to you and say, oh boy, I jerk a knot in their hinder parts if that was my kid, Right? We're quick to judge others' children. and But yet, praise God, they're not under your jurisdiction because it takes truth applied at the right time in a child's life and a person's life. Now, do I think people withhold truth sometimes when it needs to be given? I do. I do. But also, you've got to understand truth is something. It is a scalpel, if you will. It's even a rifle, if you will. It's either it can bring healing or it's to shoot something uh, under the guidance of the Holy Ghost. And that's what we're learning uh, here. Now, as we move forward in the rest of this verse, it says, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy of me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyes have that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be uh, uh, zealous and repent. Uh, I'd like to point out just quickly, right there in the middle of uh, verse 18, it says, I counsel you to buy me a gold and find in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, 
that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes. So it's, as Christians, I'll just jump into it like this. For some reason in Christianity, if somebody sins, everybody, Christians feel like they need to put it on a billboard somewhere. And actually, we're supposed to cover each other. What happened to Abraham? You remember the story. No. Yeah. Huh? No. Now, Noah, I mean, I'm sorry. Noah, yes. What happened with him? Huh? You know the story. With his nakedness, and he was uncovered. So, my point is this. As believers, we want to, for some reason show everybody's shame instead of covering everybody's shame and allow the Lord to deal with it. And what that means is if somebody's in sin, somebody comes up to you, all they want to know is the gossip. Well, what did they do? Who was it with? Or what? You know, right? And which we're actually, our response is to not convey that gossip. Our response is to cover our brother. Because believe it or not, you'll need it one day yourself. Trust me. So he goes on here, he says, the perception of the church was wrong, is what he was saying. He said, the perception that the church had was incorrect. But their blindness, though, was curable. Isn't that nice? Laodicea, we think about how terrible it is, which it is, but also gives us this indication that this blindness is curable. And he's got the refiner's fire. I put up a Psalm 19, 7 through 11. You can look that up for further study. Christ's covering is the white garment, of course, that it speaks about. And the Holy Spirit is the one that opens our eyes to the truth. Believe it or not, there is truth right in front of us, of us that I've yet to see. Now let me move on in the last part. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, to him who overcomes, and we've heard the term overcomer a lot. Now, here's what's concerning about the last part of this. He is standing outside the church. This is to the church. He's standing outside of the church. And we want him inside the church. That's the idea, is to have the presence of Christ inside the church. And uh, I'm concerned that our churches in the United States today have too much Laodicean in them for us to get the... You can say, Alan, why do you like revival? Because I know Christ is inside the church. It gives me great comfort. Uh, the presence of Christ is inside the church when we worship. When the pastor brings the word, we feel the presence of God, the presence of Christ. That's very comforting to me to know where we are inside of the churches and how he looks at us. If you repent, you will be granted permission to sit with him. Can somebody say that's a great idea? I think it's a great idea. He who has an ear is mentioned each time in the seven churches and is mentioned seven times in the Gospels. 
Now, there's also some more parallels I'm not going to go into right now. But you have seven churches in Revelation, and you have the Apostle Paul has seven churches that he writes letters to. It's an interesting comparison, uh, which we'll not go into, but if you want to do a further study, you can look into that. Who is the overcomer? And in 1 John it says, For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, to be an overcomer, I'll throw in this little thing for the church. I believe in the last days, and the, and the more we get into this pressure of this outer influence of the world, uh, I think that the need to be at the believers, I think that the premium on it is going up to have the need to be with like-minded believers for encouragement, for fellowship. And, and it's amazing uh, what you can gain from truly having a relationship with believers. And we're going to get into this just a little bit. Now, I want to hit a, a, the kind of the summary of these seven churches. Uh, I could have spent more time on Jesus being outside the church and wanting in and all that, but this class, I'm sure you already get that. And you know what he's is speaking uh, to. I want us to go a little further, uh, even today, in the starting, the summary of the seven churches. I will not get through it today, but uh, perhaps today and next week. Now here we see that John was in a cave on the island of Patmos. The apostle John had a vision of Christ in glory. Now, this is what was happening. John was in a, a cave. He had this huge vision. Now, here we're going to summarize these seven churches. That's where he was. He wrote down the revelations he had received on a scroll that became known as the Revelation. And he sent it to the seven churches in Asia Minor with a personal letter addressed to each one. Isn't that interesting? Now, he sent them all out, but he had a personal letter to these seven that he sent it uh, to, to give you a better concept of what was going on. Now, I want us to see something here. John was not very far from the seven churches. Uh, Dan, did, uh, did y'all go to, y'all didn't go to Patmos. Well, you see, you got to go back now. You're not done. You haven't made a complete circle yet. Uh, there, there's Patmos. Uh, John was not very far, actually, from the seven churches. You can see right above it is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So he was on that uh, isle of, of Patmos there in that basic vicinity, I guess you could say. Uh, what can we learn from these seven churches is what we want to summarize and look at right quickly as I'm going to go over this, is like I said, quickly. Now, as we saw in Ephesus, uh, in the first church of Ephesus, it had experienced a revival when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel there. Paul preached the gospel there. Revival broke out, and we know he kind of got in trouble. Uh, the Apostle Paul preached in Ephesus and shook the city, it says. It says he shook the city. We went over that one kind of in depth when we did Ephesus. Forty years later, after his exile, John settled in Ephesus and shared with the seven churches the writings about them. So, we, so it is believed that John actually settled in uh, Ephesus as he distributed uh, his writings. But we need to understand also that was probably 40 years after Paul had been there, and there'd been a revival broke out. So uh, 
that's interesting when you read the letter to Ephesus. You can understand Paul was 40 years previously. He had been there. Revival broke out. Now, 40 years later, here's the church at Ephesus that he seen fit, uh, needed, needed a little talking to. Uh, so that was... Uh, the great theater there at Ephesus. It was obvious at the writing of John to this church that it had lost its first love. So you kind of get the context there. So this is like 40 years later or so. John writes his letter. They'd had a revival 40 years previous, but the rebuke was, now listen, you lost your first love. And so there, when you even read the book of, of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In light of John's revelation, you, you've, let, you're leaving, you've left your first love. When he wrote it, they would be leaving their first love, I guess you could say, or he was warning them. I think, he, I think Ephesians, oh, John probably wrote around 90, 85, 90 AD, Ephesians 55, maybe 58. Uh, and then, of course, the no, he was there about 55, 58. So we would have been after that. So we, in other words, it, you can see why John wrote what he did. Now, when did the Apostle Paul, Paul first preach in Ephesus? His third missionary journey. After allowing the winter to pass, Paul started his third missionary journey in the spring of A.D. It was 52. Paul's journey brought him uh, to Ephesus where he stayed for two years and three months. This brings us to the summer of 54 A.D. When Paul came to Ephesus, first in the synagogues, he went first to the synagogues and then everywhere in the city. He preached the gospel and gained followers. The church of Ephesus, which became the head of the seven churches in Western Asia Minor, was actually established uh, by Paul. But you've got to understand, it says he first went to the synagogue. So that means he preached that Jesus Christ was the Messiah to these Jews, and some were converted and some weren't. Some were impressed, some weren't impressed. So he left the synagogue, which that was in that previous teaching, he started a church in a nearby building with those Jews that were converted. So most of these uh, early churches were converted Jews. And you had Gentiles would come in, of course, and then uh, up until um, probably 64 A.D., after 64 A.D., uh, Paul said, I'm not going to the Jewish synagogues anymore. I've, I've had it. He, he was, he, but of course, he went in, kind of broke up the synagogues, I guess you could say. Because he came in preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. Some of them got converted, then the rest of them would run him off. So they'd go set up a New Testament church, if you will, uh, in that city, which was giving Paul kind of a bad reputation for splitting churches. And uh, uh, anyway, I could be sarcastic there, but I won't. Now, if you want to see that, it's in Acts chapter uh, 19. It gives you the story behind that. Now let's move on. Now we see the next one, of course, is Smyrna. Smyrna, the second church, was persecuted by Romans. Polycarp was killed for his faith. He was one of the first Christian martyrs. And in this letter, Christ encouraged them to stay the course even unto death. So that was an interesting thing about Smyrna. We went on to Pergamum, and there, the next church is Pergamus. According to the letter, uh, Satan's throne could be found there. You remember the story. It was a center of the occult. 
the uh, letter uh, raises the question of mixing also the church with political opinion. As they got into all of that, Pergamos was uh, told it was a stumbling block and caused many to commit spiritual fornication. So that, that's a reputation to have, right? Now the next one we have here is Thyatira. And looking in our little summary here, the fourth letter was written to the church in Thyatira. It was told that it was embracing a woman called Jezebel and called herself a prophetess. They are told she deceives many by leading them astray into pagan worship. Uh, Christ did give her a warning. In other words, it wasn't like Jezebel could not be redeemed, but he, he was saying the warning was you're going to die. And if you don't, you're going to lose your children and everything else. So it gives you the idea of the possibility of repentance, uh, which we need to throw that in there. I don't look like she did necessarily. But here we've got Sardis. The church in Sardis, the fifth church, seemed to be alive but was dead. You remember it? Uh, Christ told them they had replaced their relationship with him with a fake Christianity. Now here we start seeing uh, and understanding the difference in Christendom and Christianity. Christendom is the world of Christianity, but there's people in the world of Christianity that aren't Christians. They've got a form of Christianity. And believe it or not, a lot of people believe because they have the form uh, that they're Christian. But this has a problem. It's called a fake Christianity. This letter shows that any church that has fallen into this trap could wake up and repent and be restored. So that's, that's some good news there for Sardis if they repent. Now we've got Philadelphia. The church in Philadelphia had stood firm in the middle of the troubles. They were encouraged to keep their conduct and attitude. They were not uh, corrected for anything but given great encouragement. Isn't that nice? That's the church of Philadelphia. Now, they weren't rich, and they didn't and a lot of different things, but the Church of Philadelphia, if you, about every church, uh, for some reason we all claim to be a member of that church. I'm not sure we'd all make it, but uh, the Church of Philadelphia was also given a promise, and here it is, Revelation 3.10, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. So that's where people like me, pre-tribulation type people, will use this verse even as a proof text that the church will be taken out before the great hour of temptation, which is getting ready to come upon all the earth. Earth, which is the rest of the book of uh, Revelation. So there again, that's, uh, and you can use that text in other ways if you want to. Uh, it's, a, it's amazing to me that uh, I've said this before, I guess. I think I have you. You can accumulate evidence. It's like I can accumulate scripture to prove my point of the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. But the Bible is, it's, a, it's, it's not, a, I hate to use the word funny book. It's an incredible book that this is true. The accumulation of evidence does not necessarily equal the truth. Did you know that? Did you know there's people in prison today that's innocent? But the accumulation of the evidence seemed to point to the fact that they're guilty. So therefore, the accumulation of evidence does not necessarily equal the truth. It really doesn't. Accumulation of evidence, even, even though that's the same rule of thumb we'll use when we're studying Scripture. 
we'll try to accumulate. I'll accumulate my evidence on why there's pre-tribulation rapture. And I can prove it to you and show it to you in Scripture. I can show you that verse. You'll say, well, yeah, there it is. But I know a greater truth. The accumulation of evidence does not necessarily equal a spiritual truth. And God so created a book that everybody creates, accumulates their evidence to prove their doctrine and theology. And they can lay all the scripture out just perfect right in a row. You start the first and take it. Yep, they're right. Is that not amazing or is it just me? I used to think that the accumulation of evidence did always equal spiritual truth. Now, I'm not saying you can't use it, but at the end of your accumulation, don't be dogmatic on your end uh, on your end decision. Because mine's let me down too many times. That's true. I mean, I, I used to not even promote that God would heal until God gave me cancer and healed me. I changed my theology. Isn't that amazing how, but I had my scriptures in a row on why God wouldn't. I couldn't prove to you why he would, but I could sure prove to you why he wouldn't. So God put me in a situation that my theology was tested and my accumulated scripture didn't hold up. The worst thing that ever happened to me, you need to understand this, and I do not mean this wrongly. The worst thing that happened to me, my crisis of Christianity, was that God healed me. <laughs> Y'all don't get that, do you? <laughs> I had so much faith in the way I had the accumulated the Scripture to equal my truth. Uh, it was devastating. Uh, after that event, I wonder if anything I thought was true. I basically just been starting over every day ever since. So I know how to accumulate the information to equal the truth if I wanted to persuade you of something. That's the reason I say, yes, I'm still pre-tribulation rapture, give or take six or seven years. So, but I want you to understand that, that uh, and I use it and I cite the scripture on pre-tribulation rapture, why I am, and I still do use it in my accumulation of information, but I know a greater truth that accumulation of information does not necessarily and always equal a spiritual truth because there can be some information in between your accumulation that you haven't stuck in there that would change your end result. Because what happens to all of us, we are drawn to what agrees with us. And it's even in Scripture. You say, well, the Lord led me in that. Well, I don't know about all that. Well, it, I would have to believe that the Lord led me into my position before I had cancer. And I'm the least of those to be healed of cancer. But let me tell you something, unless, unless the rapture does happen by pre-tribulation, I will die. <laughs> That's one reason I'm still hanging on to that one. <laughs> well, it suit me to skip the grave. But nonetheless, I just want you to know as I'm teaching you, and I understand the truth, and that truth is whatever's being taught, I teach it. But you're sitting there, and the Holy Ghost can give you your interpretation as He's wanting you to see for your moment in life in this time as you need it. We're not, I am not trying to persuade you to any thinking that I have. I am trying to persuade you to believe the Word of God. Understanding, and that's when people want to argue Scripture with me. I'm just like, Okay, I mean, how many accumulation information paths do you want me to debate with you? You can be on one path, and I'll get on another one and argue with you. Because I know the paths. And at the end of those paths, I'm not impressed. So God must have meant something of greater value. It's not that we don't study. But there's a meaning in this book that's sought, that you don't, you don't approach the book by trying to prove where you are. You read the book that it proves where you are. 
That's good. Good work. There's a difference. It's just a difference. And we see this was happening in, the, in these churches. Now, I don't know how I got off onto that, but yeah, but I just confessed my hidden sin, didn't I? Now, so let's look at the next church, Church of Laodicea here. Now, the Church of Laodicea, which is the last church, the Church of Laodicea completes the letters to the seven churches. Materialism and pleasure made the church lukewarm. This attitude was despised by Christ with the intent of spitting them out of his mouth if they did not uh, repent. So I know we believe in the grace of God. I believe in the grace of God. I don't know how God has a graceful spitting. Perhaps he does. <laughs> you work that theology out yourself. So now each of these letters has a strong message to convey to the churches, each one of them always in light of Christ's soon return. So one thing that I do know about this New Testament, this book, the Old Testament was talking about, about a Messiah coming. The Old New Testament talks about the Messiah was here and has left and is going to return. So every time I approach this book, the main thing that I want to do in my understanding is not accumulating necessarily uh, information, or not accumulating evidence to prove something, but I view this book and I read this book in light of Christ's return. He could be here. He could return any time. He could return at any time. That's how we're to read the book. There were two basic threats against the churches. There was a threat of Roman persecution from outside the church. Of these seven churches, two main things. Uh, the first one is the outside threat. As you read these letters, you'll, you'll see what I'm saying. Two main things came against all these seven churches. First one was persecution from the outside, from Rome. We see this in the letter even to Smyrna in a heavy way, Revelation 2.10. Fear none of those things which thou hast suffered. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you in prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto the death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So you, they, they had two main things coming against them. One was, was Rome. Now, there were also dangers within the church. So you had dangers without Rome, persecution. You had dangers within. You read the seven churches, two basic problems outside the church and inside the church. So is our same problems today. Now here's what would come inside the church, compromise and false doctrines. That would, is what they were warned against, these seven churches, was this uh, compromise of false doctrines. We see this in Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. Christ judged these churches by their love, zeal, and faithfulness. Now you're like, okay, so Christ was judging these uh, churches. He got the word of the Lord. But the criteria was their love, their zeal, and their faithfulness. Now, I find myself coming up short on the first two, love and zeal. I tend to be somewhat faithful. Now, I'm not saying I'm the most faithful person on the planet, but faithfulness 
And I think the reason I'm so faithful is it's a little bit OCD. So I don't know if I get rewards for that. But nonetheless, I tend to be a little short in love and zeal. It's hard to keep loving something that's unlovable. Amen. But yet, this is what he would admonish them about was their love for each other and the brethren. So when he judged these churches, which Christ can do that, he judged these churches is basically on love, zeal, and faithfulness. Now watch this. This is how you would judge a close relationship. Right? So basically the way Christ judged these seven churches is the same way you would judge a personal relationship. So the question is, is my love towards Christ, my zeal towards Christ, my relationship, uh, my faithfulness to Christ? The reason he judged the churches that way is because he took it very personal. That it was like a personal relationship. It wasn't like a bunch of rules to follow. It was relational. Not an organization, as we would say, but an organism, something that's alive. Not an organization. Good. And that's the reason as this church here, uh, New Life Churches, uh, I've been in uh, quite a few churches, had relationships with quite a few churches. And New Life Church is the only church I've ever been to that everybody thinks they're visiting. <laughs> I hope that hurts your feelings. Now, let me explain. I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding about visiting. Uh, it, we don't have a roll book here. Are you a member? Are you not a member? Are you easy a member? You, we can't throw anybody out of here because we don't have any members. Right? The, the membership here is held very loosely. Has anybody noticed? I think that's very good. Downside is t people tend to have less of a commitment to something they haven't joined. Are you with me? Is that okay? Can you see what I'm saying? Because we don't have a membership role and your name's not on it, people tend to have less commitment. They subconsciously will have a little bit of an idea, well, I'm just visiting, so I can go today or not go today, not go for two or three months. Nobody cares. I'm really not a member anyway. Now, that might work for your, for your mind, but it's not going to If the Holy Ghost puts you here, you're a member. And you've got to take it up with the Holy Ghost. Uh, you might, uh, you just have to take it up with the Holy Spirit. And that's one way that this church tries to operate under this idea that Christ is in charge here. But I have noticed that when people feel like they're always visiting, they never consider themselves a member and press in a little harder into the body. Now, I'll just lay that one out there for you to judge yourself. But that is one of the things that I have seen about this church and uh, other people well, you know uh, you can ask I mean I've asked a lot of people where do you go to church I, I go down here to so and so Baptist church or I go to this Presbyterian I go this, and it's because their name's on a roll there now they hadn't been in a year but they consider that their church right and you can say well where, where do you go well I, I visit down in New Life son. I heard that a hundred times <laughs> Well, I occasionally go to New Life, or I go. I asked this one person, do you go anywhere else? No, when I go, that's where I go. I'm like, I think the Holy Ghost has placed you there. But, but we've, 
probably the first time this, this concept's ever been spoken out loud this con congregation, I guess. You test it, you know. Don't. Uh, I'm just sharing with you the way the observation is to me. And I ask this church to step up, and if you're a member, be a member. If the Holy Ghost is placed, it says in Corinthians that God's placed everybody in the body where it pleases Him. Right. That's what it says. Right. And so if you're here and you're led here, you need to consider the Holy Ghost is making you, nowhere in the Bible do I see that God called them to visit. <laughs> Gather together and visit. They, they can't the assembly came together because the Holy Ghost had placed them in the body where it pleased Him. And I think we need to be faithful to that. Boy, I'm on a roll. I need to preach on tithing. Okay. How can the church progress in the future? Is that a good question? It is obvious that our own country, the world, is getting further away from the teachings of the Bible. This should wake the church up. Deception is when you do not see the danger. This is external dangers. A lot of people in the church do not see the dangers. Internal dangers except false teachings, immoral compromise, or immorality. The church today is wondering about its uncertain future. Will it see the events that are in the book of Revelation? I'll leave you right there this Sunday, and we'll continue next week more on the summary of the churches and what the Lord has shown us. Please test everything that I've said today. I say it under the idea that the Holy Ghost is leading me. Only you can test it and tell me. So let's stand as we begin. So, Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Lord Jesus, we do ask and pray that if anything I've said is not of you, I pray it fall to the ground. And if anything I've said is of you, I pray it be quickened to our hearts. I pray, oh God, that we would all see the relevance and the value of an assembly of, of the believers coming together. I thank you for those believers that assemble with us online, and we bless them. So Lord Jesus, be with us today in this congregational meeting. And it is our prayer that your presence might be recognized and experienced in our midst, that we might know that we're not the Laodicean church and hopefully a Philadelphia church. Be with us in our worship and our preaching in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.